You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I'm here. Aaron is here. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them we told you to call. Bruce Allen spoke yesterday afternoon. Uh, we cut it up, and we'll go through it like I'm heading up the Warren Commission. That's coming up here shortly. Uh, we'll talk some caps with Greg Wyshynski, who is always one of my favorite uh, guests. Uh, we're, Aaron and I were talking about this before the show. The hockey guests in this town, and Greg's a, an ESPN national writer, but he's from here, um, lives here, right? Well, it was a caps guy for a yeah. long time, yeah. Uh, but the, the, the hockey guests for long-form radio – um, podcasts uh, have been the best over the years. Joe Beninati, Craig Lachlan, um, you know Greg Wyshynski, Barry Melrose. I mean, the, the, I don't, I can't remember the last time I had a hockey guest on that I thought sucked. Seriously, I, I don't think that that's happened. They're all really good. They're all very, very enthusiastic about promoting the sport in which they are covering. Um, the, the, the players themselves over the years have been the easiest of all of the athletes to talk to and to interview. Now, the players themselves haven't necessarily always been great interviews, but man, the people that cover the sport uh, have been. Uh, so Greg Wyshynski is going to join us a little bit later on. The Caps lost last night in overtime, uh, and that is six in a row now, uh, losses uh, and they've got one more game tonight against Toronto before the All-Star break. Um, we'll find out what, if anything, uh, is wrong with the Caps and whether or not it's something uh, that is a, uh, a bigger issue uh, for all Caps fans to consider when they get to the postseason. Before I get to breaking down the Bruce Allen uh, discussion yesterday, which at times I thought was delusional and borderline dishonest, um, I wanted to mention this. So, yes, uh, I do follow Kirk Cousins on Twitter. Uh, I do. And he tweeted something out the other day that I read la- late last night. And it started a, a process for me that kept me up until about 3 in the morning. He tweeted out, I kind of understand the regular season overtime format, but in a conference championship game, shouldn't both teams get a possession even if one team scores a touchdown? Uh, that tweet that he sent out was, I mean, it's not Redskins hashtag fire Bruce Allen territory, but Kirk should get the hell off social media because people are killing him every time he tweets, every time he tweets, um, the, you know, you don't want, you don't need to worry about this, Kirk. You'll never see one meaning a conference championship. Uh, it just, you know, it just through throughout the, the thread is criticism of, of Kirk's tweet. Um, I'm getting sick of Kirk Cousins. Uh, let me just say that. I'm getting sick of him on t- on Twitter and social media, and I'm a big fan. He needs to get the hell off social media. He needs to stop talking. After the season he had, it doesn't matter that anybody that really watched the season knows that that team offensively with that offensive line was a mess. Uh, it's on him with that contract. I get it. He should get it. Doesn't seem that he does. So uh, I'm... 
I'm not thrilled with my boy Kirk these You're days. You're anti-Kirk now? It's not anti-Kirk. I'm always going to be supportive and, and hope for the best, and I do think he will eventually be a good quarterback. Um, I, well, he's already been a good a good quarterback, but a, a winning quarterback. But uh, I'm sick of him on Twitter. But anyway, his tweet about the overtime thing and the conversation since Monday, since Sunday night, about overtime when – uh, Patrick Mahomes did not get the ball uh, in overtime and a chance to respond because the Patriots went down the field and scored a touchdown to end it 37-31. Uh, that's, there's been a big conversation of that this week. There's been Here are the two big conversations, uh, general football conversations, rules, replay. The, whole, the, the Should replay be a, a part of subjective calls like pass interference? And what about the overtime rule? So a lot of the statistics came out, you know, over the last couple of days about the team that wins the coin toss is like just slightly over 50% with the new overtime rule. In 2012, we instituted, the NFL instituted the new NFL overtime rule. No longer could a field goal win it on an opening possession. You couldn't get the ball at your own 30-yard line, you know, move the ball 30 yards and kick, kick a, you know, 57-yard field goal to win by three and, and end the game. It wasn't pure sudden death from the jump. Um, and that change, I think, ultimately was a very good one. I think it really was a good one because, you know, the thought was it will ensure that both teams touch the ball, that there will be a very strong possibility that both teams will touch the ball. Now, the numbers that have come out haven't, you know, been haven't necessarily swayed everybody, you know, and the numbers that have come out aren't the numbers you need to really hang your hat on if you're looking for a change or if you want it to stay the same. The number about the the team that wins the toss or the team that gets the ball first because that's happened in 99.9% of these games that uh, I couldn't even find the information about teams that deferred and decided to kick off after winning the toss. So um, I'll get to what I did here in a moment. But the bottom line is, is that it's not about whether or not the team that touches the ball first wins the game, that percentage, which is just barely over 50%. The thing that matters and this is the piece of information that everybody needs that I could not find available anywhere the last couple of days. And it doesn't seem like it would be that hard for somebody to do what I ended up doing last night. And that is to find out how many times the team that touched the ball first won the game with a touchdown on that first drive, thereby preventing the other team from touching the football. That's what we all want to know. Because a lot of times the teams that get the ball first, you know, they win the game just slightly more than 50% of the time, but they don't win the game slightly more than 50% of the time on that first possession. So I'm looking for the data that I want. I want to find out how many of these overtime games since 2012 did the team that didn't touch the ball first not get a chance to touch it at all. That's the number you need. That's the percentage that you need. It wasn't available anywhere. So last night at about 11 o'clock, I started a process. I swear to God, Aaron, you can look at these notes. Look at, I went wow. team by, it was not available. This is a full football. legal pad right here about, I'm looking at six, seven, eight, nine. No, it's about no. 11, it's 11 pages. 11 pages. Yeah, it's 11 pages 
of going team by team since 2012 and counting up the overtime games and then going into the box score, the play-by-play, to see how the overtimes actually played out. Pro Football Reference didn't allow me to do that. And if somebody can tell me how you can just pull out all of the overtime games from Pro Football Reference, that would have made it easier. It still wouldn't have... Um, allowed me to just you know add up some numbers and move on. I would have still had to go into the play-by-play, but I had to go team-by-team, team-by-team, starting alphabetically, because I had to go alphabetically, Aaron. Do you know why I had to go alphabetically? Because I couldn't repeat overtime games. So I went Arizona, Atlanta, Baltimore, Buffalo, Carolina, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and so on and so on, counting up all their overtime games, and then identifying... Was the game won on the first possession? Or, you know, in in other words, did both teams have an opportunity to touch the ball? I also came up, I figured as I was going through this, I wanted to know what the um, average number of possessions were in an overtime. Uh, And I'll I'll get to that later on. But let me just tell you basically what the findings were uh, after I went through this. But the reason, once I got through the alphabet, about halfway through the alphabet, we started to get repeats. So the back half of the alphabet of NFL teams was much easier. The last 10 teams I did in 30 minutes. There you go. The first 22 teams took about two and a half hours. God, I can only imagine if Tom was here right now, what he'd he'd be saying about your nerd. So this is what I have. Here here are the findings. How many overtime games were there? Since 2012, since the new rule was instituted, that the game couldn't end on a first possession field goal. Uh, 117 overtime games, regular season and postseason combined. 117. Did that include uh, this weekend's games? It did. Okay. It included every game, yeah, because we had two overtime games this weekend. 117 overtime games in the NFL since 2012, since the beginning of 2012. This is the, this is the data that matters more than anything else if you're legitimately upset over the rules, and you feel like ever, both teams should be guaranteed a possession. 19.7% of the time, 23 of the 117 were decided on the first drive with a touchdown to win by six. Only 19.7% of the time did just one team touch the ball. 80.3% of the time Each team got a chance at the football. Case closed. This is not a problem in the NFL. It's not a problem. And and you you should know that anyway, because any overtime game that ends by with a field goal, a team winning by three points, means it's automatic that both teams touch the ball. All right? It's automatic. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean an offense touched the ball, but you had a chance at a possession with a punt return or a kickoff return. You know, you had a chance. All right. If you fumble the kickoff return in overtime, that counts as your offensive possession. So most game overtime games end with a, a score differential of three. Just 19.7% of the time, 23 times out of 117, the game was decided on the first possession and the other team did not get a chance at touching the football. That's not enough 
to, to make this a big deal. People have been going nuts over this. They feel like, oh my God, this can't happen anymore. It happens all the time. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't. It happens two out of every 10 overtime games, basically. The other eight times, both teams touch the ball. That's my work today. I'm going to tweet that out because I don't think anybody else... I haven't seen it anywhere. It's actually funny. As you were going on that rant, just as you were saying I couldn't find anymore, Paul Paps uh, tweeted out something. Didn't have the exact same numbers that what you are had, his but numbers? very, very similar. Uh, let me pull it up Who's here. Paul Pabst? Why don't I know that name? He is. He's on the Dan Patrick Show. Okay. Uh, he said, since the new NFL overtime started in uh, 2012, 18.8% of the time the team that got the ball first scored a touchdown, 21 of twenty of 112 in the regular season. In the playoffs, it's 62.5%, 5 of 8. Yeah, the playoff number is different. Uh, okay, so he had he had slightly different numbers. Here's what I had. Uh, I had 117. He had he had 112 regular season games. Yes. And what did he have? Five over uh, eight overtime games. Eight overtime games since yes. 2012 in the postseason. Yes, that's what he said. He might be wrong, but I had ten. Okay. No, I had six. Whatever. I, I had 117 yeah. total. So he had 120 total. 108, yes, 120, what, what, 100, 112 in the regular season, eight in the playoffs. Yeah, so he had 120, I had 117. Well, you it, know, I mean, it's it close. Was, the numbers it was are late. close. It was late. Yes. Whatever, the numbers are really close. Exactly. So he had actually less. Yes. It's a non-issue. It is interesting about the uh, playoffs, and obviously, somebody small, did small it already. <laughs> damn it! I wanted to tweet that out right when this show was over. Hey, you can still, you can still do it. Maybe it hasn't been picked up. Well, yet. now I'm worried my numbers are a little bit off. <laughs> now you're self-conscious. Yeah. All right, let's get to this Bruce Allen thing. So Bruce Allen talked yesterday, and um, he talked in Mobile uh, in like a little bit of a ramp in the stadium going on to the concourse level. Uh, J.P. Finley was there. Craig Hoffman was there. Um, I heard uh, Michael Phillips's voice Tark, I'm pretty on sure there. was there. Tark uh, El-Bashir was there. Um, I don't know who else was there. Somebody from the Post had to be there, right? I think I heard less. Uh, was less there? Okay. Les Carpenter. Um, so I would urge everybody, if you have a chance, just go to redskins.com and click on their videos, and you can actually watch it because I think there, it's actually a bit different watch, watching him answer these questions. Um, but anyway, the, my first reaction to it was, you know what? He's not angry. Um, he's fairly poised. Given the uh, incredible scrutiny and, and the, ha- the the hashtag fire Bruce Allen movement and and perhaps personally some of the pressure that he's been under um, and maybe some of the hurt that he's been feeling. I mean, every he's a human being. I mean, no one in the history of this town, sports wise, has ever been personally attacked by the fan base the way Bruce Allen's been personally attacked here over the last couple of months. I can't think of any anyway. I mean, it's possible. I guess Dan Snyder, of course, uh, but not in the intense way in which it's played out over the last couple of months. I'm going to go through each part of this and just uh, have a couple of comments on each part. The, the, the questions overall, by the way, I was going to say, I think the guys that were there did a pretty good job. I think they did a pretty good job. You know, they there, there are a couple of follow-ups. You know, you could have become... Um, not necessarily antagonistic with Bruce Allen, 
Um, you could have been a little bit more firm uh, in some of the follow-ups to some of his comments, but I know the situation they're in, and I've been in one-on-one situations much more uh, often than you know what that what we call in, in the trade a gangbang, where everybody's in on one interview and people are firing questions away. I think I think everybody did a pretty decent job. It, that's a tough spot. They they wanted to you know it's clear. I don't know if everybody got together, but they started off with some easy stuff like how's Alex doing. Um, and he went through, uh, you know, the Alex Smith stuff and basically, and I'm going to save, I'm going to play back some of the important parts. The Alex Smith stuff, he just talked about appreciating the, you know, that Alex appreciates the love from the fans, um, and the caring from the fans has really helped him. And it was good to see him at the wizards game. And, you know, uh, and he, what, what he didn't, what he didn't say is that he expects Alex back. He said if anybody can come back, it would be Alex Smith. So there was some uh, of a there, there was a small takeaway uh, when it came to him discussing Alex Smith that they don't know and they aren't necessarily optimistic. If they were optimistic, he would have said, "Hey, we actually think Alex is making great progress, great progress, and we think there's a chance he'll start, you know, the 2019 season or be available for us in 2019." He did not say that. He just said, if anybody can come back from it, it's him. Um, then he was asked about Greg Minuski. Um, this is the first part uh, that I want to play, is the question about uh, defensive coordinator meetings, the Jason Lock and Fora report about the Todd Bowles meeting, the Greg Williams discussion, Steve Wilkes, et cetera. Um, listen to Bruce Allen explain it. It was reported that you guys have brought in a couple of high-profile guys who wound up taking defensive coordinator jobs elsewhere. What were the conversations like with Coach Minuski, assuming that he is going to stay and saying, hey, these are people that we're bringing in, but I guess his job is still, you know, his job. Yeah, Coach Minuski was in uh, uh, several of those interviews that you're talking about, and and it, once again, we're trying to find the winning combination for 2019, and and there's a lot of good ideas out there, a lot of good football coaches out there. Uh, and the more that you talk to others, the more you can learn. And uh, that's what we're using this next month for. And just to circle back, Greg Minuski was in on the meetings with Bowles and, and Greg Williams and He's Wilkes? been in a lot of the interviews, yes. How does he go we into never, that? We never interviewed You did not interview Wilkes? No, I didn't know you guys said that. But like when in the Todd Bowles interview, what is that conversation like with Greg talking to another guy that's currently a deep a defensive coordinator, head coach type? Well, I'm going to I'm going to leave that profession to itself. Those are uh, private meetings, and uh, uh, once again, there's 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 more conversations going on with coaches around the league than probably has been reported. Uh, there's going to be conversations with coaches here tonight. Um, and they might go back and see Jay, and Jay might come down here tonight. So uh, the, he will talk to probably another 20 to 30 coaches around the league. All right, so that that's the first thing that I wanted to spend a moment on, um, Greg Minuski being involved in these meetings. Here's what Bruce Allen never specifically says in any of those answers, including JP's follow-up uh, question. Um, where, yeah, I think anybody that was listening to that live was a bit taken aback when he said, well, Greg Minuski was involved in some of those meetings. Really? Greg Minuski is going to sit down with Todd Bowles, his replacement potentially, and watch the owner pitch him hard on coming in and offering Todd Bowles anything? I don't believe that Greg Minuski sat in on the Todd Bowles meeting. I do not believe that. 
Uh, Bruce Allen did not say that specifically. He said he was involved in meetings, but he gave no specifics on which meetings. Like, was he involved in the meeting with Todd Bowles? Was he involved in helping to pursue Greg Williams or an interview with Greg Williams? I think what Bruce got away with there is saying that Greg Minuski is involved in some of these meetings for other positions on defense, like Kirk Olivadotti's replacement and Torian Gray's replacement. That's what I think he was involved in. That's my guess. I don't know that for sure. Um, But when it got to the Bulls meeting specifically, JP referred to that, he he deflected in that particular situation. Um, I I just don't believe that Greg Minuski – uh, was sitting in and on the meetings where they were going hard to try to convince Todd Bowles to become Greg Minuski's replacement. I don't believe that. Or, or if they did, that's sh- that's cruel by the Redskins and dumb. If I'm if I'm Bowles, if I'm Greg Williams, I don't want him in the room when you're courting me. Yeah, I I would feel I yeah. If you're Todd Bowles or if you're someone else that has been interviewed um, for that position, it would be uncomfortable for the interviewee. I would think yeah to sit there in the room with the person that they potentially would replace. So I'm I'm not believing that. I think that that Minuski's been involved in in helping to interview potential replacements for some of the spots that uh, that they've had now on defense. Olivadotti and Torian Gray specifically. Um, that's what I think. Uh, the next piece that I wanted to get to was uh, his answer, Aaron, to why Jay Gruden, um, they felt it was, uh, it was best that Jay Gruden come back to coach the team next year. This is the decision to bring Jay back. What went into the decision? To bring Jay back. Oh, for Jay to be the head coach? Yes. Uh, we looked at the, the program. We looked... We, we felt the the direction of the team was good. We have to. We didn't get over that hurdle this year, um, and uh, we're giving him the opportunity to build a staff and hopefully have a healthy team for the 2019 season. Wouldn't it have been funny if he had just said, well, "We just we didn't think we could find anybody else. We well, didn't think anybody else would take the job." That's the true um, answer. But as we found out, he's not saying many true things yeah. in this press conference. So you know, look, I mean felt the direction was good um he also talks about the staff a little bit referred to that a couple of times uh jay's coming back because they believe that they've been close you know this is something that i've talked about a lot there is definitely a feeling and we're going to get to that uh here in a moment uh where he actually says that he believes that they're close but if you believe you're close, um, then you don't make significant changes uh, at head coach. Uh, but I also think there's an aspect to it that they probably don't think they could do better than Jay Gruden right now. Um, I believe that to be true as well. All right, here's the first part of Bruce talking about the dissatisfaction of his fan base. Wins and losses are really what the accountability factor is to this franchise. What do you say for fans and supporters who asked about that accountability-wise via you specifically in your job? Well, we were seven and nine. Uh, it wasn't the players seven and nine. It wasn't the coaches seven and nine. It was everybody was seven and nine. Uh, Doug and his staff. We have to find some better players. We have to find some healthy, better players to come in, and the coaches have to put them in the right position to win. We're in the middle of the pack, and we've been in the middle of the pack the last 
uh, three seasons. And it's, it means you're close. It means you're close to being better. And we have to find the right ingredients and, and the right chemistry to do that. Do you believe that this team is close? Well, yeah, we're two games out of a playoff. Uh, and no matter how you want to look at the season, we were two games out of it. And the year before, we were one game out of it. And the year before, we were one game out of it. So we have to, we have to find the right ingredients to get over that hump. And I think with the talent that we're seeing here today and what's going to be available in free agent and getting our players back healthy uh, bodes well for us. Okay, so a couple of things here um, off of that. Uh, he had said earlier in the interview that he wasn't going to use injuries as, as an excuse, and then multiple times he referred to the injuries and in health. Um, and, and, and again, I'm, I don't have a problem with that personally. I think the NFL you know, injuries are not an excuse. I think they're a reason, legitimate reason. The healthier teams typically do better than the teams that aren't healthy, and the Redskins have been the unhealthiest of teams the last two years. Now, here's where you get into, um, uh, I think, maybe the most interesting and most revealing part of the interview with Bruce yesterday, uh, and that is you know, getting inside their minds to understand what they think they have right now. Um, you know, I was told a few weeks ago, and I mentioned this on the podcast, that they just didn't understand the reaction from the fan base. They didn't. Un- they don't understand where it's coming from. You know, that there's this feeling inside the building that they're close. And you heard Bruce say that. They're close. Close to what? Uh, you know, close to being better was his quote. We're in the middle of the pack, but we're close to being better. Um, better what? Eight and eight? You know, nine and seven and, and, and an, an outside shot at a wild card. He also was completely wrong about something that he said. And this speaks to either a deflection, um, trying to sell something that can't be sold, or complete and utter delusion. He said we were, you know, we were, you know, we were two games out this year. We were a game out last year and a game out the year before. They were not a game out last year. They were four games out last year from the postseason. The NFC last year, do you remember? Carolina was 11 and 5, they were one wild card. The, the Eagles won the division at 13 and 3, and the second wild card was Atlanta at 10 and 6, and the Redskins would have if they had won three more games, they would have still lost a tiebreaker to Atlanta. They were four games from the postseason last year. They were four games out last year of a second wild card. Now, had they gotten to those four games, they would have been 11-5, and five, would have won 11 games for the first time uh, since 1991. But they weren't, they're not close. They're two games out this year. Now they can, you know, and he, he refers to health. You know, you can definitely throw the injuries in as a reason that they weren't closer to a wild card berth. We've been through that many times, that conversation. You know, we, last to me, uh, last year, um, without all of the injuries, they would have been closer to nine and seven, which would have still been two games out of the playoff picture. They're not close. And if they are close to something, it's not good enough what they're close to. You know, what they are close to in their own mind is, you know, they're close to hanging a wild card participation banner out at Redskins Park. 
I mean, who the hell wants that? Is that what they're going for? Is that the mandate? Make the playoffs, go 9-7, and seven and somehow backdoor your way into the postseason? Because that's pretty. that's been pretty much the only way they've been able to get into the postseason over the, the, the few times they've done it uh, during the Dan Snyder era, is a late-season run to get in on the last weekend of the year. They have not had one really good regular season. Not one. The 10-6 and six RG3 year was a six-game win streak to end the year. Six games or seven? Seven-game win streak to end the year. They were 3-6. and six. And you know what? That, that was a good, I guess, comparatively, that was a damn good season. But they haven't had a really good NFL season where they were in the conversation from the jump, where they were 8-3, and 9-4, and 10-4, and four going into their final two. Chance at a bye. They have no chance at any bye. No chance at, at an 11-game win, 11 win or, or better season. This is the part that, to me, is frustrating because it is not what, you know, if, if that's the goal, wh- where is this headed? Like, if the goal is 9-7 and seven and a wild-card weekend, it's not good enough. You know, when he says they're close... Let's all understand now, because we heard this yesterday, because he outlined the last three years, and what were they close to? This year, they were two games out of a potential wild card berth. Last year, they were four games out of a wild card berth, so they weren't close last year. And the year before that, they could have been 9-6-1 and one, and grabbed a wild card berth if they had beaten the Giants in that final game of the year. All right, uh, the, the the next part I want to get to, Aaron, is the part where he refers to the crowd, the Eagles crowd, at the end of the uh, year. Because I think this is another deflection slash delusional uh, answer. It's one or the other. There's a sharp decline uh, in attendance last year. We all saw what the finale looked like, you know, maybe 75% Eagles fans. How concerning is that as uh, president of this team? Well, our, our fans are passionate, and the, I, I, I think when we had uh, went to the deep into our depth chart, I'll say it that way, uh, they didn't they didn't want to be there for an Eagle victory, maybe at the end. But uh, uh, we've hired some new people for our business staff. Uh, they've engaged our fans. They've engaged our sponsors with a great enthusiasm. And uh, I think you're going to see a big change in 2019. What was it about the previous business staff that they were not doing correctly or that was not properly engaging with the fans? I'm not going to get into that uh, in the personnel things uh, in the front office and all of that. But uh, I, I believe the, the people we've hired uh, are bringing an enthusiasm for our market that our fans are really going to appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Bruce, the only thing the fans are going to really appreciate is your your hide. All right, that's the only thing they're going to appreciate. Uh, they don't give a shit about a new business staff trying to market tickets uh, to to a product that they don't want to see. I mean, it, it, he knows. He's got to know that. Um, the part about the Eagles game and going deep into the depth chart, another um, you know, a, another referring to the injury situation this year. 
that they didn't want to come see the Eagles win. Um, had nothing to do with it, Bruce. I mean, seriously. Not one person decided on that Sunday not to go to that game because they didn't want to be there to see the Eagles win. Uh, they didn't want to come because they can't stand you, the owner, or the team right now, or the organization. And you were completely out of it. And yeah, you were deep into your depth chart. Um, but you needed to, I would think that he understands the following because he's, uh, you know, aware of the numbers um, from a revenue standpoint. Uh, he missed the big picture, which is that the fans hadn't been there the entire season. It wasn't the Philadelphia game. The Philadelphia game was just a was a memorable image because the, the Eagles needed the game and Philadelphia fan came down and took over the stadium. Um, but just as, as a big of an image in my mind anyway is a half-filled stadium for your home opener against the Colts. You know, as a 1-0 team. On a beautiful day, by the way, in September. Uh, with Alex Smith and Adrian Peterson coming off a 100-yard season-opening performance against the Cardinals. Fans weren't there all year, Bruce. It wasn't the Eagle game. They, di- they didn't care, honestly, at the end, if the Eagles won or lost. In fact, I think some people were so incensed, they wanted to see your team get their ass kicked by the Eagles. That's how bad it's gotten. You know, understand that you didn't sell out one game. You didn't come close to selling out one game. And I understand the, you know, the, the, the lack of transparency in previous years with respect to attendance. And that this year was the first year we got real numbers. So it's very possible that they didn't have a sellout last year or the year before and that the attendance was, you know, close to what it was this year. But nothing... And I've said this a million times, nothing was more indicative of the state of this fan base than the home opener against the Colts. 50,000 in the stadium, maybe on a beautiful day for a 1-0 team where optimism was actually in play at that point because Alex Smith, people were excited about, and Adrian Peterson a Hall of Fame running back, had gone for 100-plus in the opener. That's the one, if I were them, that I would have been stunned by, shocked by. Wait a minute. If we can't get people to the stadium when there's actually a chance of us not sucking, how are we going to get them there ever? That was um, that was really a another... You know, deflection, I think, more than delusion, personally. I think he, you know, had it planned that he wanted to say something about that final game and wanted to embrace the fans' desire to not see the Eagles win. That was the strategy. It was a bad strategy because nobody's buying it. Nobody's buying it. Nobody nobody decided not to go to that game to, because they didn't want to see the Eagles win the game or they didn't want to see a bunch of Eagle fans in the crowd. They didn't come to any of your games this year. You had a major issue with all of your home games when you were 6-3 and three and hosting the Texans, who had a long winning streak at that point, right? Texans had won five in a row or whatever at that point, and it was a pretty big game in the NFL that Sunday, and the stadium was three-quarters filled, you know, 25% empty. Uh, the... Um, 
I think they know all this. I think they know all this. I think there is, I've said this a million times, there is absolutely a delusion inside that building about them being close to something and about the fan base being more disappointed than apathetic. Um, there's always been that, and and there is this reliance on feeling good at these events where a very insignificant percentage of the fan base that never thinks they do anything wrong shows up and makes them feel good about how great they are. And their, their takeaway from those events sometimes is, hey, look, our fans are still happy when it's we're talking about 5%, 10% of the fan base max, probably 5%. Um, but they know what the numbers were from this year. They know that there was an erosion. They know that this erosion's been happening. You know, the, w- the reasons for it, they don't believe it's them. They believe that, again, it's disappointment. They've had injuries. They've been close, and they'll come right back. Once we get th- once we're healthy, they'll come right back, and they'll learn to love Bruce and Dan and Jay. Uh, because Dan wants to win so much. He just wants to win so badly. All right, I want to get to the Reuben Foster thing. Um, there weren't significant takeaways from this, but I do want to just play the exchange, Aaron, start to finish. There was a follow-up question or two there when he was asked about the signing of Reuben Foster and the current status of Reuben Foster. Where do things stand with Reuben Foster right now? Uh, clearly, he's a, he cleared from Florida. Uh, the league is still... Finishing their investigation of it, uh, we finished our investigation with it. He's he's working hard. He's healthy, and 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 doing the things that we have mandated that he do in order to ever wear the burgundy and gold. Do you still expect a uh, suspension of some sort from from the league? And, and where do you see him fitting in X's and O's on your defense? Well, I think I think he'll fit in very well into our defense as as a player. Um, I don't know why we would expect a suspension, but we'll let the league finish it. How did you evaluate the reward when you decided to claim him? Uh, we discussed it. You know, we went back to the reports we had a year ago from him coming out of college. I uh, think we had a, a good sense of who the person was and uh, did, did our own quick investigation of, of some of the facts that we had heard. And... Uh, you know, we're fortunate that the the outcome was what somewhat anticipated. What Why were you? Confident? What was that outcome was going to be that you were going to have a player that you could actually eventually put on the field? Well, it, I'll just say we did our homework on, on what we had to do on the on the player himself, and we know a lot of people who know him, and uh, we'll see. He's he still has a ways to go in order to get on the football field. But right now, he's doing everything correct. In that statement, you indicated that you had talked to some of his Alabama teammates who are on the Redskins now. Now, many of them told us they had not spoken with you. Can you clarify that? Yeah, I'll, we, we do talk to our players quite a bit. Um, we don't want our players uh, discussing what we discuss with them. We've talked to them about players in this upcoming draft, and they, they won't discuss it. We talked to people at Alabama. We talked to uh, a number of people. What, what was your investigation into Ruben's uh, incident, and um, what did you mandate that he do? You mentioned that he, you... Uh, not going to get into what we investigated, but we felt comfortable that we knew the player. And, and I should say I, we knew the person involved. And 
and Ruben has demonstrated uh, since he's been with us uh, that he wants to play football. He wants to do things the right way. He wants to be a valuable member, not only of the Redskins on the field, but off the field as well. And we'll see what happens with that. All right, so um, there are a couple of things there. Uh, I still think that Bruce uh, would do himself and the organization some benefit by um, saying, look, we signed him because he's a really good football player and we need to win. Um, We knew we'd take uh, an absolute beating from a public relations standpoint, um, but please understand uh, that we – Uh, understand the seriousness of domestic assault. And we've been involved in multiple charities, et cetera. You can list all the different things they've done from, you know, uh, breast cancer awareness to anything that they've been involved in with any great charity uh, uh, against an obvious, you know, cause. Um, But he should say, we knew we were going to take a beating. We did, you know, our homework. Um, And if, if he's... Uh, if he's found guilty or if something happens in the future, he'll be, you know, he won't play for us. And he did mention that, you know, for him to do certain things, he's, he's going to have to do certain things to wear the burgundy and gold. I just think there's still something from a, we get it. We understand that what we were doing in the moment was not about presumption of innocence or presumption of guilt. It was about, um, the optics of it in this day and age of the Me Too era and the issues that the league has had. I th- th- That's the one area in which I, th- I would have loved to have found out from him if the they heard from the league about it, if the league was upset, if they've heard from corporate sponsors about this particular signing. Anyway, um, to what he said, uh, you know, the part about the Bama players – the follow-up to that, and he said, look, we talked to our players about a lot of things, and we asked them to keep some of those things uh, to themselves and not share some of those things. I can completely buy that. I I, I don't have I, – I wasn't hung up as hung up on that particular issue of John Allen and Deron Payne and some of the others saying they weren't asked when the team sort of put it on the fact that they had talked to – Reuben Foster's teammates, I think they did talk to some of his former teammates. I think they talked to the linebackers that were in his position group at Alabama, Sean Dion Hamilton and Ryan Anderson, both of whom were on the Redskins. I think there were some Bama players that they probably talked to to find out more about Reuben Foster. And I, com- I can completely understand why they would have conversations about certain players that they might consider drafting. You should do as much due diligence and ask everybody. Some of the best due diligence they can do is right there in their building with their own people when they're considering drafting a player or signing a player. Um, They've got lots of resources inside that building, and then they have some outside of it. I think their quick investigation didn't include enough. It didn't include calling the Northern California District Attorney's Office. We know that because Tommy was the only one that did call, uh, or at least the first one to call, um, and that was after uh, Reuben Foster uh, was signed. Um, He also said he's not sure why the league would suspend him. I'm paraphrasing there, but he seemed to imply that he'd be surprised if he were suspended, but that's for the league to consider. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, You know, not to beat a dead horse, this was never about the player, uh, about the opportunity, about innocence or guilt. It was never about that. Um, The last thing, I'll I'll just 
paraphrase real quickly on the stadium. Um, he says they've had great dialogue with local officials. He said that that the moat stadium, you know, the one with the moat around it, the drawings that that Swedish firm, I think it was a Swedish firm, did. He said that's completely outdated. That's an old design. That's not what the new stadium will look like. And he said that the RFK site um, is really between the city and the federal government to figure out, you know, the lease issues for, for that property. And he's confident that something could get done by 2027, which is, you know, the presumed end of the lease for Landover for FedEx Field. But Liz told us when she was on a few weeks ago, Liz Clark from the Washington Post, that they could potentially stay there beyond 2027. Uh Two, there's another part that I want to play real quickly, and that is the part where the, Bruce was asked about whether or not, you know, a general manager uh, would be considered, you know, after Scott McLuhan left. I, I forget exactly how the question was asked, Aaron, but find that part. I want to comment on what he said about Doug Williams, Alex Santos, and Kyle Smith. Optimism a few years since uh, the departure of Scott McLuhan. Is that general manager role something that will get filled, or, or do you like the current power structure with Kyle and Eric and Doug and, and everybody in charge on the personnel side? Uh, we got a lot of confidence in Doug and and in his entire department, and yeah, Alex running the pro department and Kyle running the the college department. Uh, Doug doesn't want uh, to negotiate contracts. Uh, that's not his forte. He's a he's a great leader of men, and he's got a, a, a super eye for talent. So we feel comfortable with our, our department right now. Can we talk about a few of the actual players then approaching free agency? Preston Smith, Crowder, Adrian Peterson. Have you guys started conversations with any of those guys? Eric, Eric has started some conversations. Uh, usually those, as you know, heat up closer to the combine and in that period maybe when other teams start to tamper other teams start to tamper i said uh maybe but uh he's he started some dialogue but uh it's early in it Bruce, Bruce, going back to something like the trade that you guys made for alex who are the people that are involved in that kind of decision you know the alex trade was one of those uh no-brainers uh we first met with the coaching staff uh the offensive coaching staff and I believe Greg Minuski was in the meeting and talked about the different options. Last year, there was a lot of free agent quarterbacks uh, who were going to be available. Uh, we talked about our current situation, and it was unanimous that they wanted Alex Smith. We met with the personnel department in the same way, and it was uh, unanimous we wanted Alex Smith, but there was a problem. You had to trade for Alex. He wasn't going to be a, a free agent. And... Uh, we felt very fortunate that we were able to work out a trade for Alex. First, going back to the All stadium, right, so, how optimistic. All right, so I'm glad you took it to that next question because it all gets lumped in together. This was a stretch of the interview yesterday, in my view, where Bruce's intent was to make himself, to minimize himself as a decision maker when it comes to the roster uh, and personnel. You know, very confident in Doug Williams, Alex Santos on the pro side, Kyle Smith, who's the head of college scouting. Um, Doug doesn't like to negotiate contracts. That's not his forte. Um, you know, Eric Schaefer does all of that. Doug's got a great eye for talent. Um, and then it moves into the conversation about the Alex Smith trade, you know, and, and Bruce lays out the process that, you know, first of all, you know, we, we got together with the offensive coaching staff and Greg Minuski 
was in that meeting. Why was Greg Minuski in the meeting for a quarterback? Whatever. Um, But, you know, they were all told about the various options on quarterbacks, and there were a lot of options um, last year. Uh, And they were all in on Alex Smith. And then the personnel department, they wanted Alex Smith too. Now, there was no follow-up there about the Doug Williams comments, remember, that he was caught off guard and caught by surprise and told not to answer any phone calls on the morning of January 31st or February 1st, whichever day that was that the trade happened, um, you know, just over uh, 11 months, right around a a year ago. Um, Look, Bruce, this was, this is, I, I feel strongly about this. Bruce does not want you, me, or anybody to know how intimately he is involved in the roster, the management of this roster. From, from trades to draft choices to contract negotiation, etc. Look at all of the Tampa influence throughout coaching staff, roster, players over the years. Um, I don't believe that. Bruce Allen is sitting down, breaking down film 24-7. I don't think he's got his own personal draft board, but I think he has significant influence over this roster. And when he's throwing out all of these names that they're comfortable with, Doug and Alex and Kyle and Eric, you know, and then, you know, coaching staff, you know, he tries to turn this into this massive consensus you know, building, you know, process where everybody's involved. I'm just sort of organizing all of the pieces. I don't make the final decision. I think that Alex Smith trade, as I believe the Donovan McNabb trade and some of the bigger moves since he's been here have been initiated and executed by him. Um, You know, I'm not suggesting he's doing it unilaterally without conversation without meetings to discuss but I would love to hear how influential he is and how hard he pitches his preferred solution in these discussions right so let's on Alex Smith we met with the offensive coaching staff if he's in there meeting with that offensive coaching staff and he's saying you know Alex Smith did this and Alex Smith did that and this is why Alex Smith would be perfect and this is why Teddy Bridgewater wouldn't or you know a, a draft choice wouldn't you know you've got an organization as we know that is I don't know that it really uh inspires or breeds uh, you know, pushback. I don't think Dan Snyder and Bruce Allen are the kind of people that like to be pushed back on. I think that's why we've seen Joe Barry and Greg Minuski as hires and Jay Gruden as a hire, you know, rather than another Mike Shanahan type. Uh, but I, 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 this isn't the first time Bruce has done this. I just find it interesting that when the conversation about a GM or the need for a GM comes up, um, that he really pushes the you know group that he has and his minimal influence, if you will. He didn't say that. It's just what I believe he's trying to put into everybody's mind, that they have this department of Doug and Alex and Kyle and Eric, and that's the department. They're the ones making the decisions and all the personnel things. Yet Doug Williams didn't even know about the Alex Smith trade. I mean, now Doug Williams knew that Alex Smith was a possibility, 
but he didn't execute the trade. And maybe that's another thing that isn't Doug's forte. Maybe Doug isn't good at executing trades. And Bruce, you know, Bruce is the one that had the conversation with Andy Reid in Kansas City and decided on compensation, et cetera. Anyway, uh, that, that, that also is one of the reasons potentially Greg Minuski was involved in some of these conversations because it would require trading a defensive player, which they did. They traded Kendall Fuller uh, to get Alex Smith. All right, that's it. That's basically, you know, he talked a little bit about uh, another spot later on. He talked about Doug and Alex really working on the free agent list. Like, he's not involved in that. You know, there's he'd love to completely um, make people believe and make his fan base believe, especially now, that he's not involved in anything. But Bruce is intimately involved in a lot of these things. I'm not saying by himself. Again, I'm not, you know... I'm not specifically saying that he's in there watching film and he's got his own draft board and he's got his own free agent board, um, but uh, he has a large presence uh, in the roster managing uh, decision-making in this organization. I don't think there's any question about that. All right, let me tell you uh, real quickly about Window Nation. Uh, Harley, Aaron, Eric, these are some of the best entrepreneurs you'll ever meet. They have built a powerhouse of a company in their space, in the window space. Window Nation is one of the biggest and one of the best. They've installed windows in my home twice over the last decade. Uh, If you give them a call, I promise you from personal experience, you're not going to go wrong. Look, if they come out to your home, free estimate, there's no risk there, and you don't like what they're they're selling, fine, you can move on. But if if you've been thinking about windows, give them a chance. I, I think they will deliver. I'm confident they will deliver. If you've ever watched HGTV for home remodeling inspiration, um, and you don't have any time for home shows this season, Window Nation wants to bring the home show savings right to your door all this month. Call them today and mention home show promo. You'll get two free windows for every two you buy. Buy four, get four free. There's no limit. Plus, for a limited time only, get 0% financing for 18 months. Call today, get educated on the newest models and latest innovations demonstrated right in the fr- in the comfort of your own home. That's demonstrated right in the comfort of your own home. Absolutely free. You'll get factory incentives plus once-a-year home show discounts from the company that has installed over 450,000 windows in more than 80,000 homes, including mine. Get two free windows for every two you buy, plus 0% financing. Call Window Nation at 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell them that I sent you. All right, let's bring in someone who was there yesterday in Mobile. Michael Phillips does a phenomenal job covering the team for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He was there in Mobile um, for the Bruce Allen uh, get-together. A couple things before we get to the specifics, Michael. Was there anything... Um, that was off limits. Were there any conditions to this that Redskins PR put or Bruce said before you know the cameras and the recorders started to roll that he wasn't going to talk about, or was it you know have at it? You guys could ask whatever you wanted to. Uh, it was have at it. The only thing we were told was it was to be done in the time between practices at the Senior Bowl, which is about uh, however long the interview was, about seventeen minutes. So we we knew we were constrained. In, in time by that, but uh, there were there were no topics off one. And, and I mentioned this earlier, and I'll mention it to your face. I think you guys did a great job. I mean, I, it's it's a hard spot, you know, and there's so much there, and it's not one on one. 
um, and there is time constraint, and you don't want to um, turn him off early in the process and have it become antagonistic. Um, and I think you guys did a really good job, and I think you covered virtually every topic that that people wanted to hear from. What did you What did you make of his? Uh, disposition. Did, was he comfortable? Was he poised? You, you've talked to him before. You've been in, in I mean, it's been a while um, for, for everybody in terms of hearing from him. But what did you make of his overall uh, personality going into this thing? Yeah, well, I, I compare him to a politician because he is from a family of, of politicians and, and certainly a family that's very familiar with being the public face of something or, or being out there. Um, you know, he, he's never struck me as anything less than fully confident when he talks. I've never talked to him and even, you know, just one-on-one. And, well, you know, I, I don't know about that. That's something we got to think about. Uh, it's always been very certain, very, you know, not forceful, but, you know, he, he he's kind of, he's very convicted about what he's saying. I, I felt like yesterday was that way as well. All right. If, uh, before we get to the specifics, if somebody didn't hear it and they asked you to sum it up in 15 seconds or less, what would you say? The uh, team's doing fine. Um, you know, they're a couple games out of the playoffs, just missed the playoffs, <laughs> but couple, you know, a couple more good players and, and things are going to be all right. <laughs> but seriously, if somebody asked you, hey, what did you <laughs> learn from it? Um, what was the big you know, takeaway or two? What would you say? Yeah, yeah. To, to me, the takeaway was, uh, you know, it, Bruce believes in the by extent, the organization and Dan believes that they are on a positive trajectory. I, you know, we, we could scoff at that and say that that's probably not true. But, you know, my, my number one takeaway was this is not an organization that is doing soul searching right now. This is an organization that is moving forward with conviction on the path that they've charted. Yeah, I, I talked a little bit about uh, that as well. All right, let's take these one at a time, almost in chronological order, as they as they uh, as they were presented yesterday during the interview. Um, the Alex Smith stuff. He never said he is positive that Alex is going to be back or that he's bullish on his return. He just said if anybody could do it, it would be Alex. Um, my takeaway from that was. What what everybody has sensed, and that is, there's a good chance 2019 ain't going to happen if any uh, point down the road is going to happen for Alex Smith. Did you hear it the same way? You, you, well, yes, and you know, with the, with the things we know as well, we we we've pretty much written off week one of 2019 for sure. Um, I, I was intrigued when he said you'll see Alex around a lot for sure, um, which I didn't take to mean in a football capacity, but just that. You know, they, they plan on him being at the facility and part of the organization, and I, I don't know entirely what that looks like, but, you know, I, I think it would be easy to just part ways with him, but but interesting that they're kind of keeping him under that umbrella. Uh, the Greg Minuski stuff. Um, wh- one last one on Alex Smith. What is your guess? Will he ever play again, and if so, when? Based on, uh, based on the things you've heard. I don't think he's ever going to play football again. All right, let's go to Greg Minuski. Um, this was the first, you know, head turner, if there were any yesterday, that Greg Minuski was involved in meetings um, with respect to defensive coordinator uh, searches. Uh, were you buying it? <laughs> How wild was that? <laughs> you may, maybe he sat in on on a meeting. I, I think one logical, you know, and this is just conjecture, but you, you could guess that you know maybe Bulls had told them in advance. I'm not taking the job, but I'd, I'd be happy to give you guys a courtesy meeting, you know, that, you know, just 
you know, so it, it's just your goodwill. Obviously, there's lots of ties with him in the franchise. Maybe Muskie's allowed to sit in on that because they're talking more about defensive principles than wooing a guy to, to you know, be the defensive coordinator. I don't buy for a second that they weren't looking to replace him, but, I, you know, I, I don't think you have to be shy about that. You say, hey, performance wasn't good enough. We looked to see what was out there, and we're going to stick with this guy, but if he doesn't produce, we're going to replace him next year. Yeah, my takeaway listening to it, and you were there, was just Bruce never specifically said he was involved in the defensive coordinator, you know, meetings. Minuski, I I mean, Minuski wasn't involved in those. I mean, I think he's been involved in the meetings to potentially replace Torian Gray and Kirk Olivadotti, you know, and that's what Bruce may have been referring to to get around that. It was, but but who knows? Um, There were parts of this that, uh, you know, I I wasn't buying, and and there were parts that were some head scratchers. Yeah, and there were parts that were, you know, delusional, and you've already hit on it. So let's get to that. And that is. This notion that they are close, um, we're close. You know, we're seven and nine. Uh, we're close to being better. We're in the middle of the pack, but we're close to being better. What was your complete? Just your your thoughts on that that whole section of the interview? Sure, and you know, I I don't think it's unfair for you know in a vacuum to say a seven and nine team has room to make the playoffs and has room to improve. But I I think that you know you need to look at the surrounding you know circumstances here. Your, your quarterback is not coming back for next year, and you're absorbing the salary cap. You just, the quarterbacks you have on the roster aren't good enough, period. I, I think Colt probably could be good enough if he wasn't such an injury liability. Uh, you've got an injury-prone team. You've got holes at key positions. Potentially your best wide receiver is about to leave in free agency. Uh, and you've got a defense that, that got significantly worse over the course of the year, even though they were not impacted by injury. So I I think when you add all those things up, I I personally think the long-term you know, prognosis here is very negative for this team. Uh, Bruce sees it differently. I, I understand why he sees it differently, but I, I, I guess when you tell the fan base that, when you tell the fan base we're right there, you got to be there next year. Now you've got to deliver a playoff berth next year because you've told them to expect that. Uh, you know, If I were the GM or president, I would come out and say, we might be two years away. We've got a plan. Here's our plan. Just know this. We are aware of this. We're working on it. We, you know, we've got very smart people coming up with a plan to get us there. But when you say we're on the verge of being there, now you've got to actually be on the verge of getting there. I, I don't see that happening for them next year. Yeah, it's a, it's a big stretch. Um, it's I, I this is the part where and and you said it, you referred to it, and and I have as well that you know inside that building out there in Ashburn there is. There, there is a major detachment from, you know, reality and and not and reality with respect to its fan base too, in terms of what its fan base thinks. But when he says they're close, you know, he doesn't. I, there's not even a thought in his mind that seven and nine, that he's two games out of a wild card berth. You know, the last year, you know, he said he was a game out last year. He was four games out last year. I mean, he may have forgotten <laughs> that, but they, they needed to go eleven and five because he would have lost a tiebreaker with Atlanta at ten and six. You know, so they were four games out of of a wild card spot last year, and and we know what happened the year before that at eight seven and one um, on the final game of the year that was close you know they were they were a drive away from their second consecutive playoff berth but the last two years and you know you can you can chalk it up to injuries and injuries have been a factor you know it, it's they're, they're not an excuse they've been a reality but they've been moving further away from where they were two years ago 
it, it, it's an interesting perspective because I, you know, what Bruce says is, is kind of our closest window into what Dan believes, right? Because, you know, Bruce is as close to Dan as anybody. And that's, you know, the fact that Bruce is still in charge says that Dan is, if not outright believing this, at, at least a believer in, in a portion of this. And, and so, you know, that the things Bruce says, you know, yes, we're breaking it down. We're really heavily scrutinizing it. But there's a reason for that. And the reason is, you know, this is the closest we've got to knowing how the owner thinks about this football team. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that that leads perfectly into this next part where, you know, he talked about the, um, you know, the fans that came that didn't want to come out to see the Eagles win, which is completely delusional. They hadn't been out there all year, you know, including the home opener where they barely were, were able to attract just over 50,000 for a home opener on a beautiful day as a one and oh football team. Um, your sense of uh the the business uh, the the revenue piece of of their organization are they aware of uh of of just how much their fan base has eroded or do you believe they still think it's just sitting there uh waiting for them to be healthy next year i i think i would file that one under delusional more so than any of the others maybe because you know i asked them about lots of meaning so i don't want to talk about that but you know the people we've got in place now really know how to get the fan base excited. You know, they're really going to sell some tickets. Well, the people they have now are the people they had two years ago. And the only difference in attendance two years ago and last year was that they lied about it. You know, you you remember those games were not full two years ago. Those were not sellouts. They were just lying and saying they were. Um, so, So any notion that, well, we sold them out two years ago, those people are back in charge, we'll sell them out again. Well, sure, you can lie about it again, but but that doesn't mean the fans will be there. Was there any moment that you think uh, he was upset or angry or, you know, off-put at all by any of the questions? Yeah, I think it was probably Adam Kilgore's question. It, it's essentially, why, why are you the person to turn this organization around, that, that last one? Um, you know, I, I, I think that there's, you know, I, delusion's a word we've come back to a lot, but, you know, he believes he's doing a great job and he believes the organization is doing a great job. I, I don't think he's putting on a show. I, I think they really honestly believe they're doing, they're killing it. They're doing a great job right now. Um, and, and so I, I think that question kind of punctures the, the notion of that. And it may be even a little bit of frustration of why don't you guys understand what we understand, which is things are awesome here. Yeah, and the the answer about their passion is fantastic, and he shares in their passion, and they just want to win really, really misses the point that the fan base wants to win, but they want him out uh, more than anything right now. Um, And uh, I, I don't. You know, it's I, look how people react to being under siege and personally attacked by their consumers, you know, is is, you know, everybody probably reacts differently. But I think there was a bit of a window into that. You know, they just believe that if they can just stay healthy and get to the playoffs as a nine and seven team, all will be well. And, and Bruce's whole life is football. He's wrapped up in this. He, he can't take this anything but personally because this is what he does. I'm curious about the, the Dan element of it as, as well. And, and, you know, some people have, have hinted that maybe he's withdrawn a bit um, in the sense of just whether it's resignation or detachment or, or you know, trying not to associate himself with this siege. Um, but, but really, it, you know, in, in what's probably – 
an unhealthy way for an NFL team owner to do. Yeah, you know, um, and you just uh, made me think of something that I had talked about earlier as well. I thought uh, another interesting part from the interview was where Bruce, and he's done this before, he really makes it a point to try to, to, to make people believe that he is just overseeing these wonderful, you know, scouts and Doug and Alex and Kyle and Eric Schaefer and, you know, and when it comes to the Alex Smith trade, you know, it was, you know, this huge consensus building process with the offensive coaching staff and then the personnel department. Um, you know, it's a very subtle way of trying to make people believe that he's not as influential um, as he is. It, it's, um, he didn't use my favorite phrase yesterday, which is, it's a Redskins decision. <laughs> right, like, right. Who, who, is, who is final control? Oh, that's a Redskins decision. Um, that's kind of code for as a Bruce decision. Yeah. Uh, any other news uh, out of Mobile? Uh, coaching staff news, players that they're interested in news, anything? Uh, they, they met with almost all the quarterbacks and are continuing meetings and probably will meet with all the quarterbacks. I, I think we're all taking it for granted at this point, a quarterback's coming either at 15 or, you know, by, via trade, whether that's trade up in the first round or trade into late first round, early second round. I, I, I you know, I think we probably all instinctively knew that, but you know, just just reading the tea leaves here, a quarterback's coming, and um, I I think that that's probably um, you know in their mind the right thing to to reinvigorate the fan base, but it's also unquestionably the right thing for the football team to get a quarterback in here on a rookie contract to ease that that Alex Smith cap hit that continues to linger. JP reported yesterday that Bill Callahan's under contract and should be back, uh, according to Bruce. That wasn't, I don't think, in the uh, part of the interview that, that we heard. Are you hearing the same thing? Because I, I still would personally be surprised if Bill Callahan is back. Um, I, You know, I, I asked Bruce about that as, as we were walking off. Uh, you know, I saw Callahan and Tom Sula. Uh, and on Callahan, he's under contract. He'll be back. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's a, a hostage negotiation or, or, or what. I, I could tell you Bruce's view is there's a contract. Um, they want him. He will be back. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if he, uh, if he being Callahan, I, I don't know if Callahan shares those uh, <laughs> necessarily warm, fuzzy desires to be back. Uh, we'll put it that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I got the sense Bruce didn't see this playing out any other way than we have him under contract, he will be honoring that. Yeah, that's a really it's another one of those awkward situations and and they're professionals and they're competitors and you know hopefully it just, you know, basically slides off their back and they move on and and they and they perform, but you know, the 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 Minuski situation is a bit awkward and the Callahan situation and I've been hearing this for months has been awkward with him being there that it's not a good fit for him, it's not a good fit for the other coaches. And him, and and if he comes back be, because he's under contract and is being, you know, uh, forced to come back, even though he potentially wants to go to Cincinnati or or or, or another place, um, it just doesn't seem like it's the right fit. But then again, in this particular organization right now, who will they hire to replace him? Who wants that, that job? Word gets around in the NFL; it's a tight knit circle of guys, and you know, and when when. I, I had thought one of the things they had done really well was in keeping Jay and giving Jay the extension, whether you agree or disagree with that. It sent the message to the rest of football, we're not the old Redskins that are going to hire you and fire you in two years. I thought on that alone, 
they, they potentially set themselves up when they hire the next coach to be able to say, we'll give you five years, and we mean it, and we have a track record now of, of having done that. Uh, but then when you do things like this with the assistant coaches, um, that's a statement as well, and, and word gets around on that as well. Michael, thanks. Always love catching up with you. Appreciate it. Hopefully we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. Uh, Aaron, I want to go back to uh, what Michael mentioned, the one part where he thinks Bruce may have been a little bit, you know, uncomfortable or not necessarily happy. It was the, it was probably the last question of the uh, of that uh, avail yesterday, and he said it was Adam Kilgore that asked it. I think he said it was Adam Kilgore. All right, so if you can find that and play it, uh, I want to mention. I want to. I want people to hear that since we didn't play it before. Given the record under your tenure, given the fan discontent right now, why do you think you're the right person to lead the organization going forward? Why am I the right person? Uh, I share their passion for this franchise. I share the passion for the the things that we can accomplish. And uh, we're going to get this whole organization believing in it. Uh, Yeah. There was more to it, wasn't there? There, there was a, a question or two earlier that was, but that was okay. the that was the last. Anyway, part. um, you know, remember the last time he was under siege for his winning off the field comments, you know, in the Jason Reed Bruce Allen, you know, end of two thousand fourteen exchange before they hired McLuhan. He acted on that and he hired McLuhan. It's probably not what he wanted to do, but there was also a relationship there with you know McLuhan's father. And McLuhan was available. He was available because of the issues that he had had. Um, I think Bruce does know that he is, you know, part of the fan base ire and the target of the fan base right now. Um, There's just not a move there to be made. There's not a move to be made uh, without him really giving up, you know, meaningful control. You know, McLuhan did not have the control we thought he had when he was hired. McLuhan was really brought in to oversee the draft more than anything else. That was his area of expertise. He even told us that, you know, at some point uh, during his short tenure. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's that. Um, I would encourage all of you, if you haven't seen it, watch it. You know, sometimes you just pick up on body language things. Bruce was, uh, Bruce was Bruce, you know, and everybody, you know, uh, Michael Phillips uh, said it, that he was, uh, you know, in that political, you know, deflect, pivot, you know, mode of 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 not really all, d- directly answering questions all the time, and in some cases he did, um, but those weren't the ones that that hurt. Um, all right, uh, there were a few things that I wanted to get to real quickly, but first let me tell you about Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep in the heart of Fairfax. Farish, if you're thinking about a new vehicle, should be on your list. Uh, They're located right there in Fairfax, in the heart of Fairfax, in Fairfax Circle. Right now, best rebates of the year on the Jeep Cherokee, Grand Cherokee, and Wrangler. Uh, Plenty of all of those vehicles on the lot. You'll probably be able to find the make, model, and color you're looking for and drive it off the lot that day. Same goes for the Ram pickup, by the way. They've got great deals on the Ram pickup. FarishCars.com for everything you need to know about Farish. Uh, That includes live pricing, live inventory, and best deals at FarishCars.com. And if you head out there, remember, ask for Ralph Perkins. Ralph is a friend of mine. He runs the dealership. He's in the store virtually every day, uh, and he will connect you with their best salesperson. All right, a couple things I want to get to um, that we haven't touched on uh, yet. 
Uh, Gary Braun, who's a good friend of mine from the Tony Kornheiser show. Many of you know Gary. Uh, Gary's actually really smart, big sports fan. Um, we talk a lot about uh, this stuff all the time. And he tweeted out something yesterday that that interested me. It was actually a retweet of a Steinberg tweet. tweet. I, I had no idea that John Clayton was writing for the Post. Um, I didn't. Uh, but apparently John Clayton, he's a Hall of Fame writer. He's in the Hall of Fame, yes. John Clayton is. Uh, he did a mock draft where he had Kyler Murray going 15 to the Redskins in the first round mock. And Gary tweeted out with or retweeted the story and said, and then decides to eschew football for baseball. Ladies and gentlemen of Redskins Nation, meet rock bottom. Hashtag you heard it here first. This is spot on. You have to, when you're the Washington Redskins right now, even put aside the toxic nature of the organization um, as it is right now currently and has been for a long time. The name issue alone I would think, and maybe I am wrong about this, but I would think in the interviews of top flight draft choices that have choices, like a Kyler Murray baseball is an option, that you've got to find out where they stand on the name, don't you? You have to find out that you cannot be put into a position where you're caught blindsided drafting somebody who says, I will not play for that racist organization. Somebody's going to say it one of these days. They're going to sign a free agent or they're going to draft a player high and somebody's going to say it one of these days. Maybe they do try to find out from the agent. It's as easy as asking the agent, hey, is your, does your dude have any issues with the name? It's something we're in a position of needing to ask just to make sure we're not caught off guard. Maybe that's it's as simple as that. Wasn't there a conversation when Bradford came out that that Bradford, might be a yeah, thing? Yeah, because Bradford had some Native American heritage and blood. Um, I I don't remember exactly how that, that played out, that there was a sense that Bradford would have a problem playing for the Redskins, but the Redskins weren't in position to draft him anyway, right? As it turned right. out. But anyway, the Kyler Murray thing, he's got baseball. I mean, he wouldn't even need to say it if it were an issue. And I'm not even suggesting that would be an issue. I have no idea whether it would be an issue. But the baseball thing, he may just say, I don't want to play for that team. I don't want to be in that organization. I wanted someone else to draft me. Well, look look at what happened with Bo Jackson. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's all of that. These are the things that you've got to consider. I mean, look, when there's a baseball football, you know, opportunity, it doesn't matter which organization you are. That's a question you have to ask. If we take you, are you going to play football? Like you got to know that before you take them, but it would be just like the Redskins to draft him. And then he say, I'm not playing for them. I'm going to go play for the A's. I'm going to go play baseball. A couple of other things from the NFL. You saw that Andy Reid fired Bob Sutton. And that Rex Ryan apparently is a candidate to be the defensive coordinator. Yeah, I've seen Steve Sagnolo's name also uh, heavily considered there. Um, has he worked with Steve before? Yeah, in they Philadelphia, were. They, right? Yeah, they were in Philadelphia. Did, together. did Steve replace Jim Johnson when Johnson passed away? I'm not sure exactly what the order was, okay. but they were at, there at the same time and have the same agent apparently. Uh, so um, look, they. It's I mentioned it yesterday or the day before in the podcast. I've always wondered why Andy Reid hasn't gone after you know, a bona fide, you know, top flight defensive coordinator. He Sutton's been an object of, of the fans 
um, in Kansas City for a while now. Like they've always felt as a fan base they could do better, and apparently Andy Reid believes it now as well. There was another story that came out uh, late yesterday about uh, about the Cowboys. Cole Beasley, who is um, on the verge of being an unrestricted free agent, uh, said uh, that the team's front office pushes quote, pushes who gets the ball on offense. Um, Quote, honestly, the front office pushes who they want to get the ball to. Um, I haven't been a huge priority in that regard. Maybe that will change, but I'm not sure. More balls come my way in two-minute drill when there's nothing planned. Uh, That's what he wrote. Um, he also said, doesn't mean I'm gone. I'll play anywhere where I can make more of an impact. I would love love that to be in Dallas – um, I just want the ball, um, and it's hard with three to four opportunities a game. Look, that can be one of those things where he's just upset that he doesn't get enough targets. Man, when he's healthy and he plays, he's a legit weapon you know, for them. Um, they, they, we didn't mention this, but they did fire Scott Linehan uh, late last week. Uh, so they are currently in the market right for an offensive coordinator. They haven't replaced him yet. I don't think they have Linehan. The Cowboys. Um, I don't think they've replaced them yet. A lot of a lot of friends of mine who are Cowboy fans, you know, they they don't want Jason Garrett back, but Garrett is back. But they definitely, you know, that that's a more debatable subject than Linehan. Linehan's been number one. Get rid of him. He's horrible for several years running. Uh, So you've you've got that. Um, I I also wanted to follow up on a couple of things from the last couple of days. Tommy and I got into an argument yesterday about Sean Payton's play calling, you know, when they got the big play uh, down to the 13-yard line in a, in a tie game late. And, you know, um, Tommy said, oh, it was terrible. No, it wasn't terrible. Look, this is, you know, <laughs> I should have we, – we, we argued about it for a while. Um, I'm not going to tell him who to vote for the Hall of Fame and – and he shouldn't be telling me how to handle the clock at the end of games. Of course, I say that half, half in jest. But a good friend of mine, um, Ken, uh, a, a Cowboy fan, Ken uh, texted me last night and he said, Kevin, that's head coaching 101. You run the ball, drain the clock and the timeouts, and you kick the field goal. No, you don't in that situation. Guys, it's not head coaching 101. Best case is it's a debatable Subject. It is a debatable subject. If he had run the ball three times and gotten them to use both of their remaining timeouts and left the Rams with a minute left needing three um, in the Superdome with Greg Zerline as the kicker, um, I, I, I wouldn't have argued th- that that was a horrible decision. But I know and I have a sense that Sean Payton had the same sense I did in the, min- in the moment, um, which is you got to score a touchdown here. You got to go get a touchdown. The timeouts are immaterial. There's going to be a minute left with Greg Zerline. If if you're only up three, that's plenty of time for the Rams to get in field goal range. Plenty of time. The the you know draining them of their final two timeouts uh, for a field goal um, is not was not to me coaching 101. It just wasn't. It, it's a, it was a totally debatable subject on how he handled it. At best, I think he did the right thing. I think he was thinking, I need to score a touchdown because I can do the math. And Sean Payton's pretty good at this stuff. Sean Payton's been pretty good at clock management. He's one of the better coaches at doing it. I think he did the math. And he said, okay, I can leave him with a minute and no timeouts up three. I don't want to do that. I want to go score a touchdown 
and take a 27-20 lead. And if they have timeouts left, so be it. They've got to score a touchdown. Or or I want to pick up a first down. There was still a chance that they could have picked up a first down and then they could have drained the clock and kicked a walk-off field goal. It is not just the it's it's not that I'm saying that it was 100% the right thing to do. What I'm saying really is it was a debatable thing. Anybody that says it's coaching 101 does not understand this aspect of the game and didn't understand the context of the game which is the Rams can get 30 yards for Greg's or 25 yards in a minute for Greg Zerline. I mean, this dude can kick from that field goal from 57 would have been good from 70. Trust me, Sean Payton knew that a minute with no timeouts wasn't going to be a massive preventative to overtime to them getting in field goal range. He wanted the touchdown and a 27, 20 lead. I'm totally, totally a supporter of that management of the end of that game I was thinking the same thing after the past again first and 10 at the Rams 13 dude you got to score touchdown here if you're going to win the game and keep in mind for me in the moment because I had the under and I had the Rams I wanted them to kick a field goal I wanted it to go to overtime at 23 23 but I had done the math in my head and determined that you know, draining their final two timeouts by running the ball wasn't a good strategy there. Not in that game. Not yesterday. Uh, not Sunday. Not Greg Zerline inside with the Rams' ability to really all they needed was 30 yards for a field goal attempt. 30 yards in a minute is nothing without timeouts. Nothing. Uh, I think he did the right thing. And I think there was also the possibility by throwing it that they could have gotten eight yards, run it on the next play, gotten a first down without scoring the touchdown, and then you could have uh, kicked your walk-off field goal. One other thing uh, I wanted to quickly get to. Um, Somebody tweeted me uh, about my conversation the other day about the Redskins 49ers championship game after the 83 season, January of 84, and uh, said that I got the two penalties on the final drive mixed up. I did, and I, I apologize for that. The, the lot hold on Charlie Brown came late in the drive, and it was the penalty that ensured that the Redskins were going to have a field goal attempt you know, under a minute left to win the game. Mosley, by the way, I didn't mention this the other day, was 0 for 4 on field goals before the game winner. But if you go back, and that game exists on YouTube, um, the 49ers-Redskins 1983 NFC Championship game, uh, there are just two horrendous calls that essentially set up the Redskins' ability to kick a field goal to win the game with under a minute to go. Bill Walsh, as an aside, terrible job managing the clock. Uh, I went back and watched this uh, yesterday um, after I got the tweet from somebody that said I got him mixed up. It was the interference on Eric Wright that came first, terrible interference call, and then the hold on Ronnie Lott that came after. I said that the Lott hold came first. But the thing that I recognized in watching it, Bill Walsh was terrible calling timeouts. Joe Montana should have had a minute and a half left um, down three. Uh, 24-21. Instead, he got it back with about 36 seconds left because Walsh, uh, one of the greatest coaches in NFL history, didn't call his timeouts fast enough um, on defense or at the right point uh, on defense. I think back then, coaches just weren't great at that stuff, and it wasn't really an emphasis uh, for whatever reason. Um, Go watch that game. It's an interesting game uh, to watch. Also, 
Well, one uh, one more thing. Some of you have asked about Super Bowl trivia, something I've done on the radio show for years during Super Bowl week, next week. I'm still thinking about how to do that um, because we don't really take calls. We have the ability to take calls, but you wouldn't be able to hear the questions um, and call in. Well, actually, that wouldn't matter. All you got to do is tee them up, right? We could actually do that. Yeah, we, we can do it. We can do it next week. So... We will keep your eye on Twitter. We will do some Super Bowl trivia next week, and I'll just tweet out when you can call in, and we can come up with any prize that we want to. We have no restrictions in the podcast world that I know of. Anyway, all right, let's get to the Caps. Uh, they have lost now six games in a row after their loss last night to San Jose. Uh, all right, let's bring in Greg Wyshynski, who's a senior NHL writer at ESPN, one of my favorite guests when we talk hockey over the years on the radio show and now on the podcast. Um, Caps lost last night 7-6 to in overtime, gave up a goal very late to San Jose. They are now in the midst of a six-game losing streak. Greg, what's wrong with the Caps right now? Well, I, I think he, last night was indicative of the, uh, the trend this season, which is a, a bit of a, a d- decline defensively. I mean, I don't think anybody expected the Washington Capitals, who, who have been a, a tight systemic group, uh, you know, in, in previous seasons under Barry Trotz, and one assumed that would continue under Todd Reardon, especially due to his defensive uh, uh, pedigree, to be uh, 20th in the league right now in goals against average, which is where they we, we find them. Um, and you look at the teams behind them, you're talking about teams like the Edmonton Oilers and the Detroit Red Wings and the Philadelphia Flyers and the Ottawa Senators. So, I mean, you know, this is not the neighborhood you expect the Capitals to be in. So that's a bit of a concern for sure. Um, but, uh, I think these are correctable things going forward. If you're going to go through a dip, let the dip happen in January rather than in April. Why are they worse defensively? And, you know, the number of goals they've given up here in the last, you know, three of the last four games anyway, they've given up 22 goals in three of the last four games, seems to be alarming. Like, it's not, you know, they're not losing five, three games. They're losing seven, six, eight to five, seven to two. Right, yeah, and I mean, these things tend to kind of uh, snowball on you sometimes and <laughs> get out of hand. I mean, one thing to consider is how wacky the league's been overall as far as right. offense this season, where we are seeing more of these games, and there's having to be this sort of overall recalibration of of what we expect uh, defensively from a lot of teams. I mean, you look at the average save percentage in this league right now, uh, you know, three years ago, that number would have indicated a goalie having a horrific year, and now it's kind of the new normal, right? So a lot of these scores are just things that we're seeing throughout the league. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's it's sort of a lack of cohesion defensively. Um, it's, uh, it's maybe not getting the same kind of big saves that they've gotten in the past. Uh, and I'm sure it's, you know, the, the thing that we all know about this team is that when you do get a coaching change, there are going to be some benefits to that, and there are going to be some drawbacks to that, and maybe – you know, it's it's Todd Reardon kind of taking his lumps as a first-year guy after having an accomplished veteran coach in there that might be uh, more of a steadying presence during uh, rough sailing like this. You just mentioned something. Why are save percentages um, being impacted this year? Why are they lower than they've typically been this year? There's a lot of uh, theories about that. <laughs> I mean, what, one of the theories, obviously, is that we are just in a very offensive era right now in the NHL. Uh, the inability of defending players to uh, really kind of play the same sort of physical style 
Um, not only because the league is faster, just but also because the rules have uh, been altered to the point where uh, you can no longer obstruct and, and do the things that would have slowed down offensive players in the past. Um, there's also a theory that maybe, you know, the changes, subtle as they are to goaltending equipment, have come home to roost, uh, and uh, and the goalies aren't necessarily being able to, in, in the words of a lot of critics, make saves that they shouldn't be making with their equipment. Um there's a lot of reasons for it, but I mean, these are sort sort of the the ebbs and flows of this league. Sometimes where we go through eras of incredible offense and and uh, you know having these talented guys do their thing, and then we dial it back for a few years and go through more of a defensive era. Uh, but right now, I mean, we're in a, a multi-year trend of uh, goals per game uh, on the rise, and and with the incredible amount of talent that seems to be coming up, and everybody seems to be between the ages of like 18 and 24. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to add uh, anytime soon. So Barry Trotz has the Islanders in first place in the division in which the Capitals reside, um, which is interesting. And he came in here over the weekend and beat the Caps two to nothing. What as we approach the All Star break, what is the one or two? What are the one or two things that you think the Caps have missed without Barry Trotz, if anything? Well, I mean, I think once you once you take out. Because this is the thing about the Islanders, right? It's not simply just Barry Trotz. It's, it's Lane Lambert. It's Mitch Korn. It's the whole, you know, traveling Barry Trotz parade that follows him from city to city. Uh, and I think that when you put all of those guys and, and, and that brain trust and then also a guy like Lula Amarillo at the top in, in New York as well into an organization, um, there's a lot of adults in that room. There's a lot of guys that know what they're doing and a, and a lot of guys that are going to be able to diagnose problems and correct problems pretty well. And in the Islanders' case, obviously, the, the biggest issue was defense. The biggest issue was goaltending. And, and uh, they seem to have rectified that problem to the point where the Islanders have incredibly the best save percentage in the league this season. So, you know, what, what the Capitals are missing, I think, are, are guys that have, you know, been in this position before, have seen a lot, uh, and that when you go through a funk, uh, can maybe, you know, diagnose things. And then also a system in, in, with trots that clearly can shut things down and, and play more of a defensive style if necessary uh, if you're going through a, a series of games where you're giving up too many goals. So it's a, it's a sea change. And this isn't to demean Todd Reardon or anything. I mean, I think Reardon is going to be a really good head coach. Uh, but I think it is you know important to remember that you, know, you, you learn on the job sometimes. And there are things as a head coach that you didn't have to deal with as an assistant coach. Um, and uh, and it's a process, but I, I think he's the from all accounts he's the kind of guy that's going to be able to figure this thing out. The um, the reports, I guess, before the game last night, there were a couple of them that there were either one potentially as many as two team meetings, you know, in the midst of this losing streak of of five games prior to last night. What do you make of those things overall? They're healthy. I mean, I, I never get too concerned about yeah team meetings and things like that, because um, I think that uh, it, it shows the maturity of this group to try to get together and get on the same page and, and air problems in, in, in that setting and, and kind of see where guys are. Um, so I don't, I don't think that's, you know, that's, it's systemic of a losing streak, <laughs> but I don't think it's, it's any reason to read anything more into it than that. Um, but again, like the thing about the Capitals that's interesting is that uh, and this has happened a couple times in, in recent NHL history. I think the Boston Bruins would be a good example when they won the Cup. Um, this is pretty much the same group. I mean, it, it is uh, remarkable the consistency on this roster from year to year. You don't often see it. 
in a league with a salary cap, but the Capitals have it. And and maybe, you know, you start to wonder whether or not that kind of consistency could lead to complacency. If you start to wonder if, if whether or not, uh, you know, the same kind of infusion of different faces that we saw prior to last season that had such an important and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of roster-changing effect, let's call it, on the team with all those young, you know, players kind of invigorating them, the practices and pushing guys in the lineup. Like, maybe a little competition's healthy, maybe a few new faces in the room is healthy, and, uh, and maybe the, the formula wasn't to necessarily make sure that the same band comes back together for a, a follow-up season. Alex Ovechkin last night had the third. Uh, he had his third hat trick of the season, twenty third of his career. Um, put this particular season he's in the midst of uh, in his overall career perspective. Where does it rank right now in your in your mind? Well, I don't know where it ranks necessarily because I mean we're only halfway through it. I mean, so you assume that that Ovechkin's going to stay healthy, but but one never knows. Uh, uh, but I mean, as far as his, his offense out, out, his offensive output goes, I mean, from a points per game perspective, uh, you're looking at something that he hasn't done since 2010 in a full 82 game season. So I mean, it is a it is a pretty amazing pace. And you know, the thing about Obi that I, I I find to be really impressive is just this sort of uh, um, awareness and recognition of of where he is in his career. Um, you know, the fact that he is older, but still being able to do this, the fact that he has any number of younger guys that are, you know, trying to, to snatch away his crown as the leading goal scorer in this league and, uh, and kind of, you know, using that as motivation. And he's talked about it before, using that as motivation to, uh, to try to stay on top as the leading goal scorer in the, in the NHL. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, I think a lot of us know it would be easy at this point for him to rest in his laurels. I mean, for goodness sake, he finally slayed the dragon last year. <laughs> Uh, but to, to have 36 goals in 49 games at this point in the season is just a remarkable feat. All right, this is what I do as a non-passionate you know, passionate hockey fan during the regular season. I love it during the postseason, but I, I look at the standings every day, Greg, and I, and I try to, to see where the caps sort of fit in. And I, I'm, I, I'm surprised because when the season started, there was this sense that this may be a better team this year than it was last year. Um, and yet, you've got two teams in the in the Eastern Conference. One in particular that appears to be a dominant team in Tampa. Where do they stack up in the East? I still think that the Islanders will come back to earth a little bit after the the uh, All Star break. I mean, the the, the idea that they are going to be able to maintain that the, the defensive metrics that they've had this season, uh, I think, is a bit a bit much to ask. Uh, and I think the Capitals obviously are going through a swoon right now and could easily cycle back up. So I, I, I believe that they'll end up winning the division and, uh, and getting that top seed uh, against the wildcard team in the first round. The wildcard team could end up being Pittsburgh, which would be a heck of a thing. Um, but, you know, there's a clear separation, I think, at this point in, in, the, in the East between uh, Tampa Bay and everybody else. I know that they took a loss against Toronto recently that, you know, opened up some eyes. But, you know, you, you talk about, a roster that on paper is stacked that on the ice has actualized as being dominant, a great goaltender, you know, a, a collection of offensive stars. And, and also, you know, that, that, that awesome construction that you want to see from a championship team like the Capitals had last year that, you know, you've got a number of skill guys that, uh, that, that scare you, but then you also have a, a lot of grunts that do the heavy lifting when 
DC, uh, they've got that too. So they're just an extraordinarily well put together team. And and uh, and this was the year that they targeted to make a cup run, and they don't look like they're uh, falling short of those expectations. I mean, we know that sometimes it doesn't, uh, you know, really play out the way you think it will in the postseason. It's an incredibly uh, unpredictable postseason this sport is. But you think Tampa's better. Is Toronto better than Washington? Um, I don't think a, a, in a, in a seven-game playoff series I would take the Leafs over the Capitals, and, and for a couple of reasons. I mean, first off, uh, I think the Capitals, once they get into the tournament, are going to be a very good playoff team uh, without the uh, the usual <laughs> – uh, psychological damage we've come to, to to know them for. I think that winning the cup takes a lot of that off the table. And and uh, when push comes to shove, uh, I, I would take them in a seven game series against a lot of teams. Uh, but the other thing too is that Toronto just isn't there quite there yet defensively. Um, their goaltender Freddie Anderson, who uh, you know we've seen before against the Capitals in the postseason, he's quite good. Uh, but he has to do a lot of heavy lifting. And uh, I think the blue line for this team isn't quite where it's. It needs to be to be on a championship level. They're, they ask a lot of Morgan Riley. Uh, they ask a lot of a lot of guys that I think aren't necessarily on a championship level quite yet. So they've they've still got some construction to do on the back end. But from a from a forward perspective, I mean, man, they go they go three lines deep, and the ability of guys like John, you know, to have John Tavares and Austin Matthews on the ice for, you know, close to 45 minutes a game is is some an advantage that few teams uh, uh, have. Yeah, and the Caps uh, get them here um, coming up uh, uh, tonight uh, before the All-Star break. Um, last one, and I'll let you run. Do you anticipate the Caps trying to make any moves uh, uh, prior to the trade deadline? I think they have to. Uh, you know, I, I've seen Andre Barakowski's name kind of come up you know, before as far as, you know, potentially being shipped out, restricted free agent. I think there's a market for him. I think that if the Capitals wanted to bring in uh, a veteran player uh, into their top nine. Uh, he's in, an interesting, you know, uh, uh, chip that they can play. Uh, but I, I do think that Brian McClellan knows that, you know, having seen this sort of uh, fumbling and stumbling in the last few weeks, that uh, that maybe adding a, a piece or two at the deadline to fortify this team and to to uh, at least maybe add another voice, another face of that room to shake up uh, the, the formula a little bit, I think is, is, a, is a good thing going forward. And there's a lot of options. I mean, there's a, it's a pretty strong rental market. Um, <clears throat> there's unfortunately going to be a lot of buyers, I think, versus sellers. Um, but it could be anywhere from, you know, just a, a veteran hand that they can use in their bottom six to something more extravagant, like potentially a Wayne Simmons from the Philadelphia Flyers, who I think would be an interesting uh, addition on several fronts for this team. So, uh, we'll see where they go, uh, and uh, but I, I mean, I don't think that I necessarily have any level of panic right now. I mean, even with this stumble that they've had, they're still you know within three points of uh, the top spot in the division, and I think it's theirs to take. Thanks. I always love catching up with you. You're a phenomenal guest. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Two, one, three, two, one. All right. Thanks to Greg Wyshynski. Uh, the Hall of Fame stuff, uh, we'll get to with Tommy. Tommy's going to call in tomorrow. I want to save that and have that conversation with him. I think everybody that got in, Tommy voted for. Right? Yes. I'm pretty sure uh, everybody that got in was uh, he voted for. Tommy's a Hall of Fame uh, baseball voter. So we'll talk to him about that tomorrow. Uh, that's it. Um, J.P. Finley, uh, maybe later on in the week, get his perspective on the Bruce Allen interview. But I think we covered it pretty much, uh, you know, 
front to back uh, today. We we gave you all of the important parts, hopefully, and some thoughts on them. Uh, sorry for getting the podcast out uh, a little bit later today. Uh, back tomorrow. Enjoy the day.